So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 as we start our evening series this for the next seven Sunday evenings we get together this year, the last part of this year. We'll walk all the way, all the way through Philippians. And today we're going to read Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. So out of reverence for God's word as it is being read, please join me in standing and hear and welcome and receive the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this letter of Paul to the Philippians. We ask you that your grace would be with us, that we would would gain much from this, that your spirit would enliven our hearts to receive much from this letter. May we hear it as what it is, the word of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So you want to keep your Bibles open there to Philippians. So let's introduce Philippi very quickly. Uh, Philippi, um, first off, the background to Philippians is going to be found in Acts 16 verses 11 through 40. But let me tell you about Philippi. If this is a map, if this is modern-day Turkey over here, this is all the right way for me, so I'm sorry, I can't do it backwards for you. This is all modern-day Turkey. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Way up here at the top is Istanbul, modern-day Istanbul. You cross that strait there, you end up in what would be called Macedonia. Okay, And in that region, the capital city in Macedonia was Philippi. You come down from Philippi, you end up in Thessaloniki, and then you go down to Athens, and then you go down to Corinth. I've been to several of those places. It's really pretty cool. But that's the layout of the land. So Philippi is up here in Macedonia, and it was a capital city. And so if you take the time to go read, and we're not going to do it today, but if you go read Acts 16, verses 11 through 40, you get the backstory of how the church began there. But what's important for us to remember... Besides the backstory and the gospel and how it came into Philippi, it's really amazing, a couple different episodes there, is in Acts 16 and verse 11. 
verse 12, excuse me. When Paul is, or when uh, Luke is describing Philippi, he said they came there, uh, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there some days. It was a leading city. It was the capital city of, of Macedonia. But more than that, it was a colony of Rome. In other words, it was set up by the capital city Rome as a Rome representation in Macedonia. In fact, they prided themselves on being called Little Rome. They were quite proud of their calling and their status being Little Rome. And so the city of Philippi was a city that prided itself on its position. It was all highly patriotic. It was utterly loyal to the emperor. It was even a place that was filled with loads of retired uh, Roman legionnaires, retired military, who were there uh, as a reward for their service. They were given property and place to live in Philippi. And so they were sold out to Caesar. They were sold out to the empire. They had marched many miles to prove it. They had shed much blood to prove it. They were, the city was all in for Rome. Therefore, you're going to note how Paul capitalizes. You read through Philippians, you'll note how Paul capitalizes on some of those things as he gives the Christians a better grasp on who they are, whose they are, and why they are. And so, for example, Paul will mention, it will be very important, he will mention, it's one of the few places he does it, he will mention that the imperial guard, that's the special secret service of the emperor, Right? The imperial guard is actually hearing the gospel, chapter 1. And in chapter 4, some of Caesar's households has even come to faith. That would be big news to this highly patriotic city, uh, Christians in this highly patriotic city. Oh, it's even moving in amongst Caesar. Wow, that's great. He makes a big point about citizenship. They were very proud of their citizenship, and so he will make a big, big point about it. He'll make it in two places. In chapter 1, verse 27, for some reason our translators often say, translate it this way, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, etc. But in the Greek it is this, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. That would have rung big bells for the Philippian Christians. And then when you get to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul will say, for our citizenship is in heaven. Just like the Philippian citizenship is secured over in the city of Rome... Our citizenship is secured in heaven. They would have resonated with that language. That was their talk, okay? So he will talk about and capitalize on citizenship. He will also use uh, military soldiering as a picture for the church standing in battle. That'll be chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, I want you to stand side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. That's legionnaire language where you lock your shields when you are in defense mode against the enemy, right? And so he uses that there. He'll also use military language again in chapter 4, verse 7 and other places. All of that would have rung their bell because he's talking their language. But then he's going to move beyond Philippi, its particular, uh, particularities, and he's going to address his own troubles that he himself has faced so that he can give himself as a model to the Philippians on how they're to face their troubles. You'll see that in chapter 1, and you'll see that in chapter 3. And yet, all the way through this letter, Paul is slowly building up. This is probably the main theme of Philippians. 
he is slowly building up the cause of truthful unity. Truthful unity in the church. I know that joy often gets put out as the main uh, theme of Philippians, but I think by the time I get done with today, just the first few verses, you'll go, no, truthful unity is the theme. Joy is just part of it, okay? You know that because where Paul is going to go, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he's going to call on two sisters who are at odds with each other, and then he's going to call on another Christian uh, in the fellowship to come and aid them in reconciliation. And so watch for that because everything from here on will move in that direction. He's going to be building this case why the church should not be involved in petty fights over carpet color and paint color or whatever, right? Should not be the case. All right, so there's the background. So you've got the points on the back of your worship guide. There are three P points. Boop, boop, boop. I worked hard at that, yes. And the first is partnership. It's verses one through eight, partnership. So notice the letter begins with who is writing it. It's a very standard Greek way to write letters, but Paul is giving them, here's who's writing this letter, Paul and Timothy. And then he gives their credentials. Servants of Christ Jesus. We're not just anybody. You know who we are. We're servants of Christ Jesus. So that's where he begins. And then he states who he is writing this letter to. Notice verse, the rest of verse 1. To how many of the saints at Philippi is he writing this letter to? All. Already, you're hearing the theme. All. Not one or two. Not six or seven. Not my favorite group and... Forget the others, no, it's all. To all the saints at Philippi, including, and this is the only time this is done in Scripture until you get to 1 Timothy 3. He talks about, he calls the overseers and deacons. This is the only other time that those two uh, positions are stated together. And it's the only other time that deacons are actually denominated as an official position. Now, I wrote a paper on this. You all have read it. You've heard me talk about deacons and deaconing. Almost thoroughly throughout the New Testament, deaconing is, is what all Christians are supposed to do. So Phoebe in Romans 16 is not a deaconess. She is a, a sister who is deaconing. She is serving, right? Timothy is not a deacon. He's a minister, but he's called a deacon a number of times, right? So deaconing is what all Christians are supposed to do. This is one of the few times that deacons are mentioned as a specific responsibility, an official responsibility, and it's, you know it because it's attached to overseers. The only other time that's done is in 1 Timothy 3. So Paul wants everyone at Philippi to hear him, even the overseers and the deacons, all the saints, to hear what he's about to write. Notice that no one is left out. And so Paul then goes on to explain to them why he is thankful for them. And notice it is for all of them. Verse 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all. Right? No, no one is left out. I thank God for every one of you in this church making my prayer with joy, etc. Notice there it is again, the all language. No one is left out. He explains to them why he is thankful for them. And then he goes on in his prayer, which he'll actually tell us what he prays later. We get down to verse 9, but he just mentions it now that he does pray for them. His prayer for all of them has a lot to do with their willing partnership. That's verse 5. Because 
of your partnership. I give thanks to you and pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day, from Acts 16, 11 through 40, until the time I wrote this letter, I give thanks for your partnership that you have with me in this. And so his praying for them all has a lot to do with their willing, wholehearted partnership. And this partnership is tightly attached to God's grace that is on the move. Notice how he's talking about partnership. And he immediately goes into verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, he who began a good work in you of regeneration, he who began a good work of you, in you of sanctification, all those things are included. But in the context, the good work he's actually thinking of, that God began in them, is that they went against all of the cultural norms. They actually are partners. No matter what their status is in society, in Jesus Christ and in the church, they're partners. God began that good work. Unity is a gift of God. Right? Remember I said this the other day, Sunday morning. And church schisms are God's judgment upon the church. Partnership is the gift of God. It is an act of God's grace. And there you have it. So he gives thanks because their partnership is tightly attached to God's grace that is on the move. And notice that it's a partnership that is filled with deep affection. Verse 7. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way. Feel what way, Paul? Verse 6, it is right for me to feel this way. Verse 5, praying with joy, it is right for me to feel this way. Well, why, Paul? It's, this, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. This is one of the only other places Paul ever uses that language. He talks about it in 1 Thessalonians when he talks about being a mother nursing them at his breast or in 2 Corinthians. But this is a rare occasion. He talks about, I have you in my heart. This is a touching letter. He deeply feels for these people. I have you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. How does he know? Because they're all in partnership together. Okay? And so he's, uh, this is a partnership that's filled with deep affection. And notice verse 8, it's filled even with the affection that Jesus has for them. For God is my witness. By the way, if somebody ever tells you, Jesus said we're never to ever, 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 ever swear an oath. And they, they, I want you to know, they just made Paul and Jesus opposites. That is an oath. I call God as my witness. Oaths are not unbiblical. It was the misuse of oaths that Jesus was speaking about. That's a side note, okay? But here's Paul swearing an oath. I call God as my witness. How I yearn for you all. Not one or two of you, not three, six, or seven of you, not my favorite group, for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Notice how deeply touching this whole section is already, and it's including all of them, all of them. And knowing where this letter is headed to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, then you're already getting the idea of why he begins the letter the way he does here. He wants them all on board 100%. We're all in this together. It's a grace-given partnership. And we're to always be hanging in there together. That's his whole point. And so the Christian partnership is fellowship. In fact, that's the Greek word behind the word partnership is koinonia. 
It's a fellowship. This partnership is a fellowship. It's a fellowship with one another as we are together in fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. As we are in partnership with God, in fellowship with God, we're in fellowship with one another. You cannot have one or the other. It's both and. They both go together. And so then, it's not about eating your own young kind of fellowship. You may have been in a church where that was kind of the standard operating procedure. But it's not an eating your own young kind of fellowship, but it's one where we are all on the same team, all going after the same goal. Now, I could easily give you military examples because that's where Paul will go later in this chapter, but I think I'm going to give you a sports example. The All Blacks is a New Zealand rugby team. They call them the All Blacks because they wear all black, right? Kind of like Johnny Cash, the man in black, right? So they, wear all, they all wear this black uniform. And if you ever get a chance, you ought to go just look at them online. You can just type in All Blacks online and you can see some things. Um, they are known for their toughness. They are known for their resilience. It's a team that plays together in partnership. And it's a multi-generational partnership. Even previous players who've now retired are right there with them the whole time. They don't play, but they're there supporting them. It's a multi-generational partnership. And they work together to score their goals. I don't know, does anybody know anything about rugby? I know about this much, but it is amazing to watch. Now you know why football is so tame. When you watch rugby, you go, wow. Anyways, it's a team that's always put all together in partnership and it works together to score its goals. And the partnership is closely tied to their heritage because the all blacks are Maoris. I just mispronounced the tribal name. They're Maoris, M-A-O-R-I, which is an indigenous tribal ethnic group in New Zealand. And so they begin every one of their games with the famous haka. The haka so that's what you need to type in if you ever want to look it online. All Blacks, Haka, H-A-K-A, right? It's a tribal dance that has come through the generations. It's a war dance is what it is. It's a choreographed war dance that's meant to scare the spit out of their opponents. And it is intimidating, but it is amazing, right? And they do it all together. And the way they do it, it's, it's believable. But notice that it's a partnership where they are all linked together with a goal in mind. And the goal is to win the game and make a name for their tribal people. That's a partnership. And Paul has that kind of thing in mind here. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way in his little bitty book called Let's Study Philippians. I recommend the book if you need a book to study Philippians as we go through this series. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, and I'll just quote him. Quote, it's an important important aspect of the New Testament's understanding of the gospel. It's an important understanding of the uh, New Testament... uh, Let me go back. New Testament's understanding of the gospel, that Christ not only draws us to himself by his Spirit's work, he also draws us nearer to each other. Our commitment to Christ always implies a commitment to Christ's people. To love and care for his brothers is to love and care for him. Ferguson goes on to say, there is ordinarily no such thing as an isolated Christian. We belong to those who belong to Christ. We belong to those who belong to Christ. By the time you get done with the 
eighth verse of the first chapter of Philippians, you go, oh, yeah, we're all in this together. We either hang together or we hang together. That kind of thing, right? We're all in this together. And so then Paul tells these gospel partners, he finally gets around to telling them what he prays for them, and not one of them is left out. And so everything he said in the first eight verses feeds into how you read the prayer when you get to verses 9 through 11. So verse 9 through 11, he says, he gets around to his prayer and he finally says this. And it is my prayer. As he already mentioned, I pray for you, I pray for you, I pray for you. Here's my prayer. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now, we dealt with that prayer earlier this year as I did that series called Praying with Paul. And I highly would encourage you to go back and find that and listen to it where I get into it more deeply. But here are the basic details. I'm going to give you five parts. He prays that they would abound in love And in the context of verses 1 through 8, he's primarily thinking of love for one another. They're all in partnership together by the grace of God. And so he's talking about them abounding in love for one another. And why would that be a central theme in Paul's writings? What is Jesus' new commandment? I'll give you a new commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. Right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's Jesus' command. Right? It's a big theme in the New Testament. And here it's the first thing Paul prays for. And in the context of verses 1 through 8, you know what he's saying. That your love for each other would abound more and more. This is before he gets to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He's already, I mean, he's hitting on all cylinders, so to speak. That your love would abound for each other. But notice that it would be wrapped up in two things. Knowledge. And what's the second thing? All discernment, okay? Knowledge, right? So that not just knowledge about facts, but actually knowing one another. Right? You don't know how to love if you don't know someone. It's hard to know how to love someone if you don't know them. That's what he's talking about. That you may abound in, in love with knowledge, knowing one another. But then notice the next part, and all discernment. I really appreciate that being there because there are boundaries to how you express love. I don't have to get too gra- graphic, I'm sure. But there are boundaries to how you express love. You cross a boundary and you've moved into sin. Does that make sense? There are boundaries to it, right? So I know how far to go, you know, this way and that way you do too. And so so it's knowledge with uh, with knowledge and all discernment. That you would know, you would abound in love by knowing each other more and also having discernment in how you express that. That's the first part of his prayer. And then he moves on. That you would be able to gauge. He says here that you would... Um, that, that, um, that uh, you would be able to prove what is excellent, that you'd be able to gauge and prove excellent this love that you're abounding in, that you would be able to prove that this love is excellent in contrast to what the world calls love. Okay, that's the theme there. That you'd be able to show and prove that this love is the excellent love compared to the way the world talks about love. Because how does the world talk about love? And this goes on, this doesn't happen to be just 21st century. This is throughout the ages. The world talks about love as, 
you know, you have feelings and all that stuff, but it's just the way I feel about you or how I can use you or how you can benefit me or, I mean, just go read the Iliad. That's how the gods loved. What can I get out of you? Oh, I love you deeply. Let me steal more from you. That's often love. Love in the world is let you do whatever you want to because I don't want to offend you. You want to re-identify as a different gender? You want to go through the procedures? You want to go through the surgery? Oh, I love you. Yeah, I support you. That's not love, right? And so this love that we're abounding in more and more with knowledge and all discernment, we're to show its excellence in contrast to what the world calls love. Then thirdly, he prays that all of this growing in love and showing the excellence of it would be would have an aim, an aim of growing purer and more blameless and fruitful as we look to that day as we will one day be. That we would grow in purity and uh, grow purer and more blameless and fruitful as we as we will one day be on that day. Notice that that morality is has a view to not now necessarily, but to what we will one day be by grace. So what we're doing now resonates and echoes with what we will one day be when Christ returns and makes us completely there. But notice that it's this abounding love is actually what fuels us to become pure and blameless and fruitful. So then he goes on in his prayer. Drawing our life from God, drawing uh, righteousness uh, from Jesus, excuse me, drawing righteousness filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Is that referring to justification? Sure. Is that referring to lived out righteousness? Sure. It's a very generic statement. The way it's stated, it is open to both of those at the same time because both are true. We did a whole sermon series on Sunday evening some years, a year ago or two years ago on the double grace, duplex gratia. If you're justified, you will be growing in sanctification, right? It's a double grace. And so that fits with how Paul is leaving this door a little open here. But you're drawing that life from Jesus, and then he goes on, and it's all to the glory and praise of God. All to the glory and praise of God. That we would grow, that they would grow in all these ways But ultimately, it would be all in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And so this prayer fits into the direction of the letter. This prayer fits into the whole theme of what he's driving at, this truthful unity. That's where he's moving with all of this. And it makes sense. And as you already begin to pick this up and you know where this is headed in chapter 4, then you, you already realize, oh, Paul has already laid the groundwork just in the first 11 verses, he has laid the groundwork for what he's going to call on them to do when you get to chapter 4. But even more, he's laid the groundwork for what he's going to call all the Christians to do in chapter 127 through chapter 2, verse 11, which is probably the heart of the letter. 127 through 211 is probably the heart of the letter. And so then, having made their partnership a big point... And describing his prayer of partnership, he brings out his press release. I don't know what to call it. I think it's like a press release. So verse 12 through 14, Paul, part of what Paul is doing is giving a press release of sorts. What he's doing is he's making sure that they have the facts from the horse's mouth rather than from some alt news source or through the rumor mill. 
When I was in the military, we used to joke and say, um, if you really want information to get out to the troops, just go tap into the rumor mill. It'll get to them in 30 seconds. But if you go through official channels, it takes days, right? The rumor mill just spreads like wildfire. He wants to make sure, though, that they understand what's really happened to him and not what they're hearing through the rumors and through alt news, alternative news sources, okay? And so here's what he tells me. He gives them basically three things. It's, what he's doing here is he's saying, here's what's really happening to me, and here are some of the outcomes thus far. Number one, yes, I'm in prison. Now think about it. If you're a member of a church in a city that is highly patriotic and loyal to Rome, then you would think immediately that Paul, the leader of this faith, may not be a good guy because he's where? He's in prison, right? There's a scandal to what he just said. I am in prison, right? That would be a shame, could be a shameful mark, but he's going to tell them why he's in prison. So he tells them, yes, I'm in prison, but I want you to know, number one, it's, it has it is moved to advance the gospel. To even advance the gospel, verse 12, into the imperial guard. I mean, I'm here and I'm actually getting a chance to rub shoulders with the secret service and they're hearing the gospel. Somebody celebrate with me. Woo! Right? That's what he's telling them. But then he goes on and it moves on. He says this. He's making it clear that his imprisonment is not for any other reason but one. That he is not in prison for any criminal activity and he is not in prison for rallying a revolt of any kind. He is in prison because of Christ, he says. They all know I am in here because of Christ and for no other reason. I think that's pretty significant. You know, even the Apostle Peter. If you think about Peter, think about Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane when he pulls out that sword and he lops off the servant of the high priest's ear. Do you realize that Peter was on the cusp of creating, of becoming an insurrectionist? That's what he was doing. He was on the cusp of becoming an insurrectionist and raising an armed revolt against the leadership of the, of the state. And he's the one then, after he was really saved and after the Pentecost, he's the one who writes 1 Peter chapter 2 and 4. Let me read parts of chapter 2 and 4. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He doesn't say be subject for the good of your nation. Be subject for the good of your own family, your own reputation. He says be subject because you belong to Jesus. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Because it's the will of God. That's pretty big. It's the will of God. So that by doing good, submitting to them is doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Think of who wrote that. He would not have agreed with that that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here he is now, a changed man, and he sees it. He goes on in chapter 4, a little later, 1 Peter, he says this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Paul is making sure that they know, I am in prison for no other reason than this, Jesus Christ, period. And that would be really important to the Philippian Christians. They needed to know that so they could know exactly what was happening. The third thing he points out to them is in the last verse there. In verse 14 he says that his incarceration for being a follower of Jesus is helping to inspire fearless confidence in the brothers as they boldly proclaim God's word. Here's what's happened to me and here are some of the outcomes, he says. Now Paul is going to launch out of this press release starting in verse 15 and explain some of the unfortunate attitudes of some people starting there in verse 15, but we will get to that the next time we get together on a Sunday evening. So for now, pondering Paul's letter up to this point, we should think of the value of three things, and then I want to give you a final thought. So the value of three things, and then a final thought. We need to ponder the value of gospel-made partnerships. To help us do that, I'm going to ask you some questions. Don't answer me. Answer God, answer yourselves. Gospel-made partnerships. Do we rejoice in those partnerships God has made us a part of, making our prayer with joy, or do we gripe and complain about them? Do we see our partnership as including all of our fellowship or only those who I like, this little group here? Are we confident that the one who began a good work in these brothers and those sisters will complete that good work in the day of Christ? If we are, then how does that change the way we treat, it, treat them? Do we have the affections of Christ for them? Again, as Sinclair Ferguson put it, our commitment to Christ always implies a commitment to Christ's people. To love and care for his brothers is to love and care for him. So that's gospel partnerships. Partnership praying. How much do we actually pray for each other by name with specificity? I, I would imagine several of you do, but it's not an easy thing to do, right? You actually, that's why the prayer calendar's out so that you can actually work through it and in a month you've prayed for everybody, that's great. And if you're doing that, high fives, that's awesome, okay? But it's a, it's a habit that you have to grow into. So how often do you actually, how much do we actually pray for each other by name with specificity? And maybe if you're thinking, well, what do I pray for somebody else? Well, as I said when I was preaching through this passage in, in the series Praying with Paul, uh, verses 9 to 11 would be a great place to start, right? So there, you've already got everything you need for partnership praying. Here's the last thing to ponder. Proper perspective in our trials. Notice that Paul was glorifying God and enjoying him in his adversity and his disadvantage. And he wants them to do the same thing. Are we glorifying God and enjoying him whatever adversity we're in, whatever disadvantage we face? Now, that's easy to say. It's not easy to do. 
Some of you know I got a pinched nerve. It happened, started a week ago Saturday. And that thing, if you know anything about pinched nerves, I mean, it's like, it's like everything in this side of my body is just bruised and battered. And my thumb tingles, right? And the pain is excruciating. When I'm sitting, when I'm sitting in the pew, it's like, I'm just trying to find a comfortable space. I told Peter, I said, when I go to bed at night, he knows what I'm talking about because he has to deal with the same kinds of things. I just look for the least painful position, you know? And I'm going to be honest with you, it was not easy to think about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever all this last week. It was far more easy to be crabby and grumpy, right? And think about when's the next time I could take some Tylenol? This is killing me, right? So it's, I mean, it's a legit question. When we're facing trials and adversities and disadvantages of different kinds, are we glorifying God and enjoying Him? Here's the last thought. I want to end with this heartwarming point. It goes back up in verse 8. Paul says, I yearn for all of you with the affections of Christ. That Greek word affections is splanknoi. It means with the guts of Christ. Right? Because that's very Hebrew kind of language. If you read New Hebrew, you would understand that. With With the innards of Christ. Right? That's what he, and so that shows up when you go to Jeremiah. It's God's own language in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20, where he says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart, my um, meah, my bowels, my innards yearn for him. This is the Lord. My innards yearn for him. I will surely have mercy on him. So the fact that Paul says, I yearn for you with the affections, with the splanknoi of Christ, with the innards of Christ, he's pointing out Jesus yearns for us already. Think of that. Jesus is already affectionate towards you. And he yearns for you, not academically and not, um, and, 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 and not abstractly. I mean, he yearns for you with his innards. And Paul is just saying, I just join right with him in yearning for you with those affections. He has affections towards you. Christ's affections towards you as people, his whole hog, his innards yearn for you. I think that's a great way to put it. My friends, that's amazing. I mean, when you walk out of here, you ought to be thinking, wow, Jesus is that affectionate toward me. Does he know who I am? Yes. And he still has affections for you. Anybody? Hallelujah. Amen. Great. Awesome. I mean, that is, that's amazing. And so then that changes the texture of Philippians and it changes the texture of how we relate to one another. If this is how our Lord feels towards that sister I'm having problems with or that brother whom I'm at odds with, if this is how Jesus feels towards me, hmm, then why is my beef with them so stiff and stubborn and maybe sometimes divisive. Knowing that Jesus is this affectionate toward us, me, you, should make us stop before we double up our verbal fists to fight with them. Instead, to run to Jesus, whose insides long for you and long for them, and to ask Jesus to help you to yearn for them with just as deep an affection as Christ has for you and for them. Let's pray. What an amazing statement, Lord, that you yearn for us with your 
insides, with your splanchnoi, with your bowels. It's not an academic or abstract affection you really do long for us. Lord, that's amazing. I pray that when we walk out of here today, we will be skipping and singing your praises and giving thanks all this week long. Help us, Lord, to enter with Paul into your affections for one another and to exhibit those affections. And where we find ourselves sometimes at odds with others, help us to have your affection for them. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.